to you, dear listener. I am delighted to report that I survived moving up to the main part of the house here in Topanga during a record heat wave. There are some big changes going on in our home. My sister, singer-songwriter Julia Fordham, is in such demand in the UK that she will be spending most of the next year there. The only person she trusts to look after her daughter and dog while she's away is me. So I will be a teenager's personal Uber driver, cook and laundress for my foreseeable future. I wrote a book, Plus One, A Year in the Life of a Hollywood Nobody, that chronicled my battles with Julia's dog, Muttley. Here we are, 11 years on, with a new delinquent dog and a teenager. Lovely. Talking of Plus One, one of the real-life characters in that memoir is my friend Dr Suzanne Donovan. I gave her a different name, Christine I think it was, as there was another character named Suzanne. But she was and remains an inspiration to me. Dr Suzanne Donovan overcame great adversity and poverty as a child to become a top doctor who works mostly in LA and travels the world dealing with outbreaks of deadly diseases. Here's Dr Suzanne Donovan. Put the kettle on, Tiago. We simply must applaud them, the chat podcast with Claire Borden, Kirkham and Chad Bond. Are you Doctor or Professor Donovan? Well, you can call me either. Okay. I'm going to call you Suzanne, if I may, because you're my friend. <laughs> That's lovely. <laughs> so I know you, and I know how amazing you are, and that you save lives. You know, this is such a trivial town to live in, Hollywood, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And, but you actually save lives on a daily basis. That's an enormous responsibility. Does it, is it hard to carry that? Well, that's an interesting question. And I, you know, my response to that, especially when I go out to outbreaks, is kind of what I do. Just like firemen go into burning buildings and police go in and save people and politicians, whatever they do. Well, don't get me started, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but and teachers you, teach. So you just, that your job is to go into dangerous situations because one of, not only do you treat in hospitals here in LA, but you do go into dangerous areas like Sierra Leone you went there and dealt with an Ebola outbreak with I mean extraordinary what you did there very dangerous where hazmat suits people died every day like can we start with that and talk about what what it's like to treat someone with Ebola it felt a little bit surreal surreal when I started I initially was invited by the UN to go to Sierra Leone to a remote hospital called Kenema General Hospital, or KGH for short, which was a hospital that specialized in another hemorrhagic viral disease called Lassa fever, which also has a pretty significant mortality rate. And they asked me to go over because all the nurses and doctors were dying. And one of the areas that I have some expertise in is something called infection control and how diseases spread in hospitals and how can healthcare workers protect themselves. And so when they called me up um, and told me how dire the situation was, that in fact all the doctors had died, and many of the nurses... Uh, it's sad for me to, to, to think about how my colleagues could become infected and so die. So the patients weren't, had no one to treat them? That's exactly right. Wow. So what did you find and what did you suggest they did to stop everyone dying? Well, I was going to go out with all my U.S. ideals of how to wear these, what we call PPEs or personal protective equipment. Um, unfortunately, when I arrived, um, the doctor, an American doctor who was there in the hospital, he got infected. And so I actually dropped my training 
in Freetown and drove out with this a police... was headline news actually at the time I remember that's correct and I went to this very very remote area on the eastern border of Sierra Leone and I evacuated him to Freetown and so he was the first Ebola patient I saw was not someone from Sierra Leone it was a U.S. doctor. Did he look unwell when you saw him? He did look unwell. He also was incredibly good-looking, should I say. (laughs) Yes, you may say. And when I knocked on his door, he was in a tiny guest house. And I had on some modified precautions in terms of what I was wearing. He opened the door and he said, Suzanne, I've been waiting for you. And I looked at him and I said, I've been waiting to meet you too. Unfortunately, he had Ebola. But did he know how ill he was? I think he did know. He was an incredibly dedicated physician who had worked in Africa off and on for years, uh, really a leader in a lot of tropical diseases, um, but was, you know, really committed to helping the people in Sierra Leone. Is he still with us? He is still alive. And in fact, I just communicated with him recently, and he's doing a lot of great work. So is he completely functioning, all parts working? Well, that's one of the the sad things about Ebola. You know, the Ebola outbreak in Sierra Leone had about a 70% mortality rate in healthcare workers. But if you were able to extract those infected individuals and bring them to Europe or, or the U.S., the mortality rate was much, much, much lower because of all the care we're able to offer here in the States. But saying that, you still are left with complications. And so you may have complications where one of my colleagues who I also evacuated, helped evacuate to Germany, lost the tips of his fingers. He was a Ugandan, young Ugandan physician. Um, is, he, he, is he working now? Is he, he is back working in Uganda. Can you just remind us of the symptoms of Ebola? Yes, the symptoms of Ebola are initially very similar to the symptoms of typhoid fever or malaria. You develop some fatigue, diarrhea, nausea and vomiting, um, high fevers, uh, and then that progresses as the virus replicates in your body. And so when the virus gets to very, very high levels, uh, patients get very ill. Uh, They may start bleeding out of their mouth or actually having bloody stools. Their blood pressure drops. And without supportive treatment, many of them will go on to die. So you were surrounded by death when you were there? When I took over the hospital, um, there were over 100 patients with Ebola in a hospital that was really built for about 30 to 35, and that wasn't counting the bodies of of individuals that had succumbed to the disease. Dead bodies? Dead bodies, because what we call the cleaners, the hygienists, were on strike, and um, so no one had been in the hospital. There were no nurses uh, that had gone in to the hospital, and so the hospital was filled with very sick patients, including very young children, and then dead bodies had been left there. So one of the first things we did is really try to organize the hospital, get the cleaners in there so that we could get the hospital cleaned up and also remove the dead bodies and and ensure that the dead bodies were treated with respect. That was very important to me because there was a lot of uh, dehumanization that was going on in these facilities of bodies left uncovered um, next to children that might be in the next bed, uh, and, you know, no food and, and other types of medications being brought in initially. So what is the treatment for Ebola? The treatment right for Ebola is really supportive care. So making sure that you provide fluids, or what we call ORF, oral rehydration fluids that was supplied by the WHO. On, on the drip sort of thing? Well, that mean. would be intravenous fluids. Yeah. But when you're dealing with large number of patients, uh, that was a challenge. And so we restricted the IV fluids 
to patients who really, really needed them, and we used a lot of ORF. A lot of the patients also were infected with other diseases like typhoid, and about 25% or one in four of the patients were infected with malaria. So I made a decision up front to treat all the children for typhoid and malaria. We had a very, with very... Antibiotics. antibiotics. Yes. So we had antibiotics in, in the hospital, and I didn't wait for the test results to come back. I just treated all of them. Um, made sure that I got you know, nutrition for the babies that were in there. So we had a lot of moms and infants come in. Uh, frequently, the moms would die. And so we would send our drivers out to get breastfeeding um, solutions for the babies. And then I would ask for volunteers from the patients to make sure that the babies were, wow. were nourished. And uh, if I may say, whilst I commend your bravery and sincerely thank you for your service, your selfless service, you must have a bit of a, a reckless or a, a fearless thing going on because I, I know that you, just to make it clear, you have two children who were, when you went, what were they, 21 and 19 or something? No, a little bit younger than that. Oh, were they? But yeah. they supported your going. Yes, so they were... you had co some colleagues who didn't think you should go. That's correct. Both my children uh, supported my trip. They were 15 and 17 oh, really? okay. at the time. Close to being 16 yeah. to 18. <laughs> that's better. Say. Oh, that's fine. That sounds okay then. Uh, yes, many of my colleagues thought um, at one end of the, the spectrum that I was reckless. Oh, really? And when I returned, there was a lot of fear in this. We're talking about in physicians and nurses. I, I'm just going to say there wasn't a tremendous amount of support uh, among were, some of my were colleagues. Were you fearful that you might get it? Well, you know, this is what I do. And, you know, the, the, when I speak on Ebola... I, the analogy I use is scuba diving. I'm a, I'm a diver, and there's a lot of very similarities between diving and going into Ebola unit. It's a very risky thing if you're not prepared. It requires some training and education. We use a buddy system in diving. We use a buddy mm -hmm. system when we go into the Ebola unit, and your equipment is very important, and you're responsible for your equipment, and, and you have to be very methodical. So for those of, who are listening that are scuba divers, you know that you check your equipment a couple times you have your buddy check your equipment before you jump into the water. It's the same thing of going into an Ebola unit. I had the buddy that I was working with. I checked her equipment. She checked my equipment. I made sure I had the highest level. I used the highest level of protection when I went into the Ebola unit. That wasn't the case in the Dallas hospital where the nurses were infected. Right. So ironically, I was safer than nurses in the U.S., because I was using the highest level of protection, which was not recommended by the CDC at that time. So do you think some of the nurses and doctors who succumbed to Ebola, not necessarily died, but they got it, do, do you think they bear some responsibility? They did, made a mistake? Ab didn't? Absolutely not. I mean, I think in Sierra Leone, it's very difficult for, for a doctor or nurse to know whether they were infected in the unit or they were infected outside the unit. We have a TB oh. unit at our hospital. There's only three TB units in the United States. It's a state-of-the-art TB unit, and we have healthcare workers that are sometimes worried about coming into the TB unit. And I always argue you're safest in the TB unit because you know everyone has TB, <laughs> and you're going to use the highest level of protection for the cases that you're seeing. When you're in Sierra Leone and you're going into the unit, if you are doing everything correctly, so if you look at the MSF units where they do an amazing job with hemorrhagic fevers, amazing level of training. When individuals do get infected, the real question is, are they infected in the unit or are they infected in their community when they leave the unit? Where there is ongoing transmission of Ebola. 
without question, there's, there's transmission in the Ebola units. I had one of my colleagues who got a needle stick. But oh. clearly, that was a high-risk exposure. If you're working long hours and you don't have a buddy in the unit, that's a much higher risk situation. But for the African doctors and nurses who are going back to their homes or back to their villages, or maybe participating in funerals, or interacting in their community, were they infected in the unit or were they infected and in the community? Presumably the people who were moving the bodies were at risk as well. Well, everyone who was moved. So the highest risk situation with Ebola victims are the are being exposed to patients that are very ill or have died because those bodies are teeming with virus. And so we ensured that the funeral teams and the transport teams use the highest level of protection. Mm. The highest risk to people in the community was during the traditional burials. And so when you do a traditional burial, which was not supported by the WHO, was not supported by the government, you're taking the body, you're washing the body. Right. You're being exposed to the bodily fluids which are teeming with virus. And then you're hugging the body, maybe kissing the mm. body. That was a very, very high-risk exposure to those and loved is ones. Is that how people do funerals? And, and yes. Yeah, that, yeah. Right. Keep calm and chat on. Now, you like a virus, don't you? That's your <laughs> thing. I mean, you deal on a daily basis with the AIDS virus. That's with correct. With Zika, with all of these things. And... When was the first case of AIDS that you witnessed? Well, I was very, very lucky that when I went to medical school, and I never wanted to be a doctor, I just want to say. You wanted to be a vet, didn't you? I wanted to be a vet. I went into vet school, and I always tell young people I'm a dropout. (laughs) I dropped out of vet school. And, you know, I thought as an afterthought, I thought, well, I'll go into medical school. Vet school is harder to get into, so I'll just do that. And that's a good profession, and I can still do a lot of interesting things with that. I was very fascinated by zoonotic diseases, which are diseases... What did you say? Zoonotic diseases, diseases spread from animals to people. Oh. But it's a two-way street. Which is AIDS, allegedly, from monkeys, or not? Well, it certainly is Ebola. Oh, really? Yeah. Ebola comes from... Well, Ebola is harbored in bats. Really? And it'd be interesting to see what what other animal reservoirs are out there. But we definitely know that, that bats are one of the large populations, and that was one of the risk factors, is actually being in an area capturing bats, capturing primates that may be incidentally infected with Ebola. When when did you see the first AIDS? Well, when I started medical school, I had already been working in Africa previous to that. And so I wrote a grant um, during medical school so that I could get back to Africa. So I went back to Africa my first year of medical school uh, to Tanzania, and I previously worked in Kenya. And I was doing work with a different virus um, that caused a, a cancer called nasopharyngeal carcinoma, NPC. But incidentally, that was the beginning of the AIDS outbreak. And I was... So when was this? It huh? was 1984. No, 85. 1985. Thir- over 30 years ago? That's correct. Oh. And so I was this little medical student wandering around Tanzania, seeing the first cases of AIDS, wards and wards filled with people with what was called Slim's disease or Slim's man's, uh, man's disease. And they all had tuberculosis and they were dying. And I wandered from hospital to hospital uh, seeing these initial cases. But uh, did you know that you needed to 
be protected then? Well, the, back then I was more worried about tuberculosis mm. because I was in these very large TB wards. And many of these patients, in retrospect, when I started seeing my first HIV patients in the U.S., were co-infected with HIV, but the tests just weren't there. And then in the early days, people died. Oh, everyone died, yes. Everyone died. Of HIV, most, the majority of people died. And, and what about now? If, and AIDS, you know, what? HIV right now, I, I work at one of the county hospitals. I work at, uh, at UCLA, but the majority of the patients I see are at our county hospitals. So it's very rare that we have a patient who dies from HIV. It's really patients who don't take their medications. And so for me, that's a little boring. I hate to say that because <laughs> well, I like... people take their medications? If people take their medications, a, a GP can take care of these patients. All right. I like to take care of patients who are, have more challenging infections. Mm. I have patients that I saw when I was a UCLA fellow that I'm still seeing now. Our oldest patients are in their 90s. They do very, with, very well with HIV. with HIV. And I see all the women. I run the HIV Women's Clinic. And I take care of all the pregnant patients. And I've never had an infected baby. Not that That's extraordinary to me that you can be pregnant with HIV positive and you're HIV positive and your baby with with some sort of medical inter- intervention with antibiotics yeah. or something. What it's fantastic. You give you know pregnant woman heart or highly active antiretroviral therapy, and you can prevent HIV transmission. I started this. I started in the HIV pregnancy field back when there was a lot of hostility from older OBGYNs who thought it was irresponsible for HIV-infected women to get pregnant in the early 90s. And, you know, now I have grown children who come back to visit me, and their mothers have told them that I was their doctor. And the moms, as I say, we're getting old together. They've seen me pregnant and my children growing older. My daughter, you know, has volunteered in that hospital. She started rounding with me when she was five years old. And met many of my patients back in the old days. Is there a cure for? There's not a cure, but right. there's effective treatment. Right. Okay. There's effective now, treatment. Now, so what is? Is there anything that you're very nervous about? Uh, any virus that we should, that that you're scared of, if that's the right word. What I think everyone should be most afraid of is the specter of multi-drug resistant bacteria. So in the pre-penicillin area, where we didn't have any antibiotics, you know, people died from mm-hmm. simple infections that we have effective therapy. So you get a pneumonia in the old days, people would die. Yeah. We now have bacteria that are resistant. Are you witnessing that? Yes. You're I'm, getting I'm, TB I'm, resistant as a So we, we had the most resistant case of TB in our TB unit. Fortunately, we were able to cure that, that patient. But TB resistance is something to be worried about. But simple bacteria that people get from urinary tract infections infections in their gallbladder. They're incredibly drug resistant and we're seeing them now in the United States. So this should be very, very frightening. So what can people, people do to not get infected? Stop taking antibiotics when they don't need to. Oh really? Yes. And wash your hands? Wash your hands. Wash your hands in terms of transmission, but really stop asking your doctor for antibiotics if it's not indicated. And I think that's the problem in many of these countries is the willy-nilly use of antibiotics that are being procured in pharmacies without doctors even being involved. So, one, so there was a case famously recently um, about a man who had this drug-resistant gonorrhea, but he has been treated. Does that mean that he would have, in his life, had a lot of antibiotics? 
No, what it means is he went to a country that has drug-resistant gonorrhea. Oh, I see. And didn't use a condom and brought that back to the UK. I believe that was the case in the UK, correct? I don't know. Yes. And that's the other thing, you know, we've the US is becoming under our current government somewhat isolationist. And yet all of these organisms don't respect boundaries. Mm. When we go to these other countries, we're bringing these organisms back. And we're also bringing organisms to those other countries. And so we can build a wall, but you can't build a wall against drug resistance. And you can't build a wall against viruses that are going to cause outbreaks, like variant influenza. Variant influenza? So the influenza that we saw in 2009, the Mm. pandemic flu strain, called swine flu. Yeah. And I think you know I have a pig in my backyard. I do, Miss Piggy. And I always say, don't blame the pig. (laughs) Um, That's going to happen again. You know, influenza is fascinating because it it's a, has a very, very simple genetic makeup. And it's kind of like you get two animals together and they have two different strains of flu. It's like they have a poker game and they just exchange their cards and form a whole new virus. And that's how we get these new, new strains that are coming out all the time in Asia, also in our domestic animal populations. And many of them are not very communicable. To, to humans or they don't cause significant disease. But all it takes is one, and that's what happened in 2009. So we got this new strain of flu, and it caused pandemic flu and many, many deaths. And you, you, you advocate use of um, getting, what do you call it, vaccinated against flu and also shingles, all of those things. You're very pro-vaccine. I'm very pro-vaccine. One of my jobs right out of training is I ran, was a medical director of the immunization program for LA County. I mean, I, I think many individuals that are not supporters of vaccine haven't seen what happens when you don't get mm-hmm. vaccinated. end of man this these bacteria I mean could it wipe out mankind do you think I I don't believe so because as you know me very well I'm an <laughs> eternal optimist yes yes and which is why I go into these places and yeah. go into the Amazon I know well, do, that's what I'm saving that up you ayahuasca you druggy. <laughs> I, I would I mean you do this you go around and you go to dangerous places where many people fear to tread and don't go and you and you you save people's lives basically and you went to the Amazon to remote villages where they had deadly outbreaks of... So the, I got called up because the indigenous tribal, and I don't want to mention the country because the government didn't know I was going down there. Okay. The indigenous tribal leadership contacted me, um, a VI cultural liaison who knew of my work, and they asked if I would come down and help them. They were having these outbreaks of horrible diarrhea with high fevers in these very remote villages. And um, I decided to go down and uh, we traveled in a, what I should say is very small purple plane. And there are some things I am afraid of. And one of them is traveling in very small planes <laughs> in the middle of thunderstorms. So I just have to close my eyes because I really do get fearful of that. And we landed in really a very, very remote area. And after seeing a the first, you know, 25 patients, it was clear to me that this was typhoid. Um, and typhoid, you know, in this country... How, what made you think it was typhoid? Well, 
Because you weren't, you weren't able to do cultures and look under a Well, market. I tried to. I, I tried to bring the cultures back to the lab, but I tried to put them on dry ice, but it, unfortunately it was so remote that um, the back, other bacteria overgrew the culture, so they were not able to isolate the organism. But there's some features of typhoid that are very characteristic, and one of them is you can develop a very high fever with a fairly normal pulse, and that's called a pulse temperature disassociation. And all of these, or I would say the majority of the individuals I saw, both young children, older kids, and, and adults, had this feature, which was very typical. And they also didn't have access to any type of um, hygienic um, areas to dispose of their fecal material. So they would go into the river and use that frequently or nearby the river. And so the river would become contaminated and then they would go oh, in the river to spread it to everyone well they would go in the river to to bathe yeah. and then to obtain their drinking Not drinking water, water. Yes. oh dear yes. so were you able to to treat them yes yeah, so i brought in antibiotics and and for mild cases you don't need to, to to be treated but for the more significant um the really sick kids and and older adults i did treat them and before I got there, there had been some deaths. There were a couple of uh, three um, individuals that went to the border hospital, and I saw them in the hospital, but there were some deaths um, at the first village. So did before. you say, stop pooing in the bloody river? We, we did talk about that. I didn't say it quite in those, <laughs> those words. I said in a way that was maybe a little bit more diplomatic. But, but, but you can offend people, can't you? Well, that's one of the things it, that's really cultures, important. I don't mean it, that yes. to be patronizing or disrespectful. No, it's, it's, it's something I've learned over decades of working in Africa and other countries, is you do want to be culturally appropriate and, and sympathetic and, and mindful that you are a visitor and you're going to be leaving. Mm. And I saw a lot of that when I was working on the Ebola outbreak of, you know, the Americans coming in, the top guns. And we're here yeah. to fix the problem. You're not here to fix the problem. You're, you're visiting and you're going to work with the system as there. Try to improve the system. But it needs to be done within the construct of, of where they're at right now. Um, they're not looking for someone to come in on their white stallion mm. and rescue them. Um, so you do have to work with the system. And if the system doesn't have a hospital like where we were, we set up a hospital. We got banana leaves and used banana leaves in the community center to kind of make a little hospital unit so I knew where the patients were. And we set up a unit, and then we worked with, with the tribal leadership in a manner that um, would work once we left because we are going to leave. We're not going to Do you follow up that. and see how they're getting on? Yeah. So yeah. they were very grateful to you, Dr. Donovan. And what was it they did for you to thank you for so saving when we got So when we got to the last village, the, one of the shamans offered ayahuasca, which is uh, a ceremony that's been stolen, I should say, in the U.S. and has become very new age and trendy. But in many of these countries, it's a very spiritual ceremony that um, all the villagers undergo. But they wanted to offer it to me and thanks for what we did. Uh, that's a massive honor. It's a massive honor, isn't it? Was, it? it was not just to and me. And not I, only is it an honor... It's quite an ordeal, and not everyone's cup of tea. Yes. Well, this this was not in a in a Malibu mansion <laughs> or in a Topanga retreat. Uh, this was in the middle of kind of the Amazon forest with bats and mosquitoes. Ebola and... carrying bats, maybe. <laughs> Definitely hemorrhagic you, fever you, carrying bats. Actually, you do. It is a cup of tea, isn't it? Don't they make a, 
a drink. It's uh, well, it's more like drinking a cup of dirt. <laughs> <laughs> and then what happens? You go off. You 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 go off and lie in your your blanket. It's a hallucinogen, and and it's a purgative. Yes. And so you you do. I call it the slim fast diet. You quickly. You poo and you puke. Yes. You, did you poo and puke? Yes, I did. Excessively. Excessively. Is somebody with you? So I had the young chief look after oh, me. Oh, Lord. And um, experienced, really, uh, it was a fascinating experience because I looked at it from the standpoint as a scientist. Of course you did. So you you can go into the experience, and a lot of people think this ex- this this experience is going to fix them. Well, it does. They claim, I mean, it's allegedly cured people of addictions, depression, psycho, I mean, serious psychosis, I think. And Well, I, I can't speak to that because I don't have, you know, I, I don't have any of, of, of those things going on with me right now. But um, I did develop uh, some very, very enhanced hearing. And it was fascinating to me because it persisted. For a couple of weeks, and it made me wonder of the untapped potential mm. of our brain, and also the untapped potential of of these hallucinogens. And these 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 agents have been studied for decades and decades, and very much frowned upon, frowned upon in this country. But I do think there is something to it because it, would you it do was it again? Fascinating. I don't have a need to do it no. again. It, it, it was, I felt um, very much that I was acknowledging their respect towards me and I do like to participate in, in the safest way possible um, in some of the culture's traditions when I do go to these outbreaks. Um, but no, I, I don't have a need to it to, to participate. But would you recommend it? Is it not for everyone? I mean, I wouldn't want to do it, I don't think. I, I think that um, it's something that needs to be done um, under supervision right. of experienced yeah. So, I mean, you do, you do like a challenge. So can you talk about Zika? Because that was very, not fashionable, obviously, but that was headline news a year, two, 18 months ago. And now we're not hearing about it. Yeah. You know, Zika is just one of many viruses that has kind of jumped continents um, a few years before that, it was chikungunya, which is one mm. of my favorite because I love the way it sounds. I like to say chikungunya. I'd like to order it in a restaurant. That's correct, and I have. <laughs> <laughs> I have some chikungunya with my sushi. So, you know, Zika, Zika is, a, is a virus that, again, you know, started in Africa and had very sporadic activity, probably significantly underreported in Africa, and then, you know, jumped that continent. It was and South America, wasn't it? It, was it jumped. It jumped to a, to a few Brazil. islands, and then it made its way, like Ebola did, to a very densely populated area in Brazil. And so you combine a virus with a, what we call a naive or non-exposed population um, in an area that's extremely urban and overpopulated, and you get what happened in Brazil. Uh, same thing happened in Freetown with Ebola. You have a massive outbreak, um, and I think if if there wasn't so many young women, we may not have realized the the huge impact Zika has during pregnancy, which is very similar to those of you in the audience uh, that are older will remember what happened with German measles or rubella. Mm, yeah. 
So what it causes during pregnancy is very similar to what we call CRS or congenital rubella syndrome, where it shrinks the brain, it affects the vision, affects the hearing, uh, causes mental retardation. And really, that's we don't even know the, the impact. We're going to have to right. wait another 10 and 20 years and it incredibly sad. We're not hearing of more cases though, it seems to have died off. Right, it's run its, it's run its course oh. um, through the population at the present, um, similar to what we see with other viral diseases. Mm. But let's see what happens in other countries. Have we got anything on the horizon we should be worried about? Um, I think on the horizon is, is going to be, again, um, dr- the drug-resistant bacteria, yeah. which I already mentioned. Is this all, is it all these things sexually transmitted? Should we all be wearing condoms? Well, condoms are always a good idea. <laughs> Do you remember Audrey Hepburn always said Paris was a good idea? Yes. Well, condoms are always a good idea. <laughs> you know, what's fascinating to me is we always thought of things like gonorrhea or chlamydia, HIV as being sexually transmitted. But now we're seeing things like Zika being sexually transmitted, Ebola being sexually mm-hmm. transmitted, things we're, we were not really even aware of before. So I always know that I'm going to have a job. <laughs> and I remember back in the day, I was writing about pregnancy. And if and it used to be the thinking that if, if a couple say the way what they used condoms, mm-hmm. um, as, as a contraceptive if they got pregnant even if they hadn't used a condom they still say that, that their way of using contraception was with a condom so if you didn't use one that still counts as a failure so in actual fact they got a, a bit of a bum rap in percentages because it, not using one counted as a failure if that makes sense I that's think. correct that's correct so they're yeah. actually um, they, they're also a good contraceptive as well as a, a protection. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the best we have and it hasn't changed very much. And it's really unfortunate right now. We have some other things we can use for HIV. And what's great for HIV now is you can use what's called PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis. There's post-exposure prophylaxis with, with pills that you can take. But for many of these infections, it, it can be very, very tough. And remember... You know, the male's in control of the condom. And so uh, the woman is still in a tough position because there's really not a good female condom. And in many countries, the female can't advocate to use a condom. Right. It's, it's, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because, I mean, what's that expression? It's like eating a banana with the skin on. Um, a lot of people, <laughs> men apparently, don't like using them. That's correct. Yes, That's correct. and they should. And so sex, is it a terrible thing? <laughs> it sounds like there's all sorts of things you can get. Well, it shouldn't be. Um, but certainly if you read the news or if you're an infectious disease, it yeah. might be a little scary. Yeah. Certainly no one's knocking down my door, Claire, <laughs> to date me. I should just add that. <laughs> there was a long, dry period after I returned from Africa. Is that true? Oh, yes, absolutely. Well, oh, because hi, thinking... what do you do? <laughs> And then, you know, maybe they Google me, and then pretty soon no one's calling. Really? Yeah. But then they, you, but you're so fun. And you go scuba diving, paddle boarding. You're a great cook. Yeah. You can even talk about lots of things, not just deadly diseases. But also, you're the person they should do want to know, because you could <laughs> save their life. Well, that is correct. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Certainly, I always get invited on trips. <laughs> <laughs> Good. And have you got anything... Coming up in the future? Well, I'm going to be returning to Nepal. 
Right. Um, and I'll probably have been going to Belize and working with the Belizean healthcare system for the last five years. It's a tremendous country. All of you, I recommend going down to Belize. It's fantastic. We simply must applaud them. The chat podcast with Claire Fordham. Studying to be a doctor was a big deal for you and your family. You did not come from a family of academics. Could you talk about your your background, which was certainly not privileged? Yeah, I mean, I was, my parents didn't go to college. Uh, My siblings didn't go to college. But there was no question I was going to go to college. I always saw that as my way out of poverty. Um, We didn't grow up with very much, and so I put a high premium on education. And I was very, very fortunate to do well in school and and to go to medical school on um, several different scholarships. I also worked, so uh, that helped. But you, I mean, you had a very difficult, challenging um, upbringing. I mean, you spent time in foster care. Well, certainly it was a challenging childhood. I, I wasn't in foster care. My brother was. Um, I was actually placed in an orphanage with oh, one of which my is, brothers. Oh, crikey. Sorry, that's even worse. <laughs> okay, you were in an orphanage. How long for? So I was in an orphanage from when I was a baby to about eight or nine. So the bulk of what I would consider the formative years. So when I came out, I was uh, a fairly independent young woman. And um, I, I really do believe it made me into the person that I am. I was very fortunate to be taken out of a difficult situation and placed in the largest orphanage in the country, which was called Angel Guardian. It was a Catholic orphanage. And although I'm not a practicing Catholic anymore, I believe that a lot of the principles of uh, Catholic uh, orphanages were inculcated in me and uh, the emphasis on education, the emphasis on service, and, you know, a lot of the Christian principles that are also found in other religions and found in Buddhism, um, you know, be of service, do the right thing. And um, I am very, very appreciative of, of everything that orphanage offered to me. I was safe. Um, I had an uh, edu- amazing education. And um, I had three meals a day. But you also, you ended up being still involved with your mum because she, she, you were placed in an orphanage. What, That's correct. Did she give you up or so take, were you taken away? My brothers, uh, my two brothers and I were both taken away. We All three of us were taken away. My mother was mentally ill and I think it's really important to ta- talk about that because there's a tremendous amount of shame around mental illness. So my mother was a schizophrenic who was untreated and I have two brothers that are schizophrenic. And I have a third brother who is not. And because of the abuse and neglect in the home, we were all taken away. And uh, two of us, my, my older brother and I, were put in an orphanage. My youngest brother, who's a newborn, was placed with a foster family. And so he had a lovely foster family that he was able to spend part of his childhood with. And when my... Um, my father was an alcoholic and also had mental, uh, mental illness uh, issues. And so they were able to go back to court and, and get custody of us. But unfortunately, during the rest of my childhood, they struggled with mental illness and alcoholism. And so that was a little bit more of but a you challenge. you still took, and, and you went to college, and then you, you took care of them. Yes, that's correct. Financially, again, emotionally. So you really... What, what, what would be the alternative? 
turn your back on them. They uh, let you, know, you down. You know, I looked at my parents as this was the best they could do. Right. Well, that's what we're supposed to believe, isn't it? That's that's the. Have you done therapy? If you don't mind me asking. <laughs> uh, you know, I did do therapy. I did therapy for a while, which is very hard for me because it seems very self-absorbed. And I apologize to all the therapists and all the people in therapy out there. I don't like talking about myself, which is why right. this is very challenging to me. <laughs> but it's in, you're inspirational. But the therapist told me that I had the most difficult childhood they'd ever heard of. And I believe that attitude encourages this whole sense of being victim. And I told him he was wrong, that I don't see it that way, that I saw many gifts in my childhood. I saw the orphanages offering me a very strong background, a very strong moral compass, which is integral to who I am. To anyone who knows me, they, they know. It's, I'm very clear on what the right thing is to do. It offered me a tremendous uh, drive to succeed in academics mm. because that was what was recognized in the orphanage. It offered me a safe childhood, and many children in the United States do not have safe, a safe childhood with their family. And, you know, I think we all choose to, to, have, to choose the filter of how we see our life. We can look at our blessings or we can look at what we didn't But get. do you think you're lucky because you have a positive outlook on life, or did you teach yourself that? I choose to have a positive right. outlook every single right. day. And you're a very compassionate person. Were your parents proud of you? My parents were beyond proud of me. Oh, good. Beyond proud of me. My, da- my father, so I, for those of you in the audience, you know, I, I went from a very poor background of, you know, growing up without knowing if I was going to have a meal, without having soap to even wash my clothes, being bullied in school um, because my, I had holes in my uniform and didn't have, wasn't cool in high school. I'm pretty cool now. Yes, you are. Um, and I now live in a beautiful, yes, you do, beautiful home, in a beautiful part of the country. Um, I have amazing kids, tremendous friends, a fantastic job. I'm incredibly blessed. And have you got any ambitions left, career-wise? Well, I love my job now. I love teaching. Um, I would love to continue to do uh, international medicine. Um, challenging because I have a full-time job and if I had one wish I would like to have more flexibility so that I could spend more time out of the country it's really my passion I love meeting people I I've been so inspired by the doctors and other healthcare workers that I've worked with in Africa and Nepal and Fiji and South America and Central America it's it's inspiring to me Um, I have friends all over the world how lucky am I? How lucky are we to hear your wisdom and kindness? Thank you for chatting with me, Professor Dr. Suzanne Donovan. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you. We simply must applaud them. The chat podcast with Claire Fordham. Keep calm and chat on. Thanks, Suzanne. The word legend gets bandied about way too casually. But if you've won an Academy Award and seven Primetime Emmys in a career spanning seven decades and you are still working, age 93 and still funny, you're a legend in my book. I am beyond thrilled and excited to tell you that my next guest on the chat with Claire Fordham is comedy and acting legend Cloris Leachman. 
Thanks for listening. Keep calm and chat on. We simply must applaud them. The chat podcast with Claire Borden. Keep calm and chat on. The chat with Claire Fordham is an M Squared production.